And it almost feels a little bit odd having the kids go. And you'll, you'll understand a little bit why uh, later on in the sermon. But it's an interesting note. Uh, huh. Anyway, really glad we get to do that. But you'll understand more about why it's so important to have them, not necessarily in the sermon part, but in worship with us. Because they are, in my mind, fantastic role models. So, who's your role model? Who is your role model? Who was your role model growing up? As kids, when we're little, maybe we thought we wanted to be just like mom and dad because they were the most influential people in our lives. And if you're older kids, sometimes you're shaking your head, no, not anymore. Yeah. Or when we were in school, maybe we had those special guests like firefighters or medical professionals, and they came to teach us. And so we wanted to pursue noble occupations like those. They were role models. Or if you were a little nerdy like me, you maybe wanted to fashion your behaviors and your actions and your, your attitudes into the same as your favorite superhero. Maybe when you, maybe when you were in, in your teens, maybe you hung a particular poster of a certain celebrity or a sports star and you changed your style to be just like them. And throughout our lives, we have role models. In our text today, the disciples ask a silly question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And throughout the Gospels, they routinely do this. The disciples argue about which one of them is the greatest, right? Like, a, like a elementary students argue over which teenage mutant ninja turtle is the best. But they wanted to know, they wanted Jesus to tell them which one of the twelve was the best. Which one would be picked to be the role model for future disciples? Who's the greatest? And Jesus answers by calling a little child to him, placing the child among them and saying, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of all the role models that Jesus could have pointed to as the example of how to live and who to emulate, he chooses a kid. He bypassed the religious leaders the honest wage earners, the devoted mothers, the compassionate physicians. Instead of people that we might consider to be worthy candidates, the role model that Jesus chose was barely out of diapers. Probably had snot in his nose and gum in his hair. Now as modern readers, we might approach this, we see this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, and we might come away with a different understanding than what Jesus intends. Because in our world today, especially in American culture, children are highly valued. Right? We spend all kinds of time and money investing in them, helping them to enjoy a plethora of activities. So much of our lives are geared around, centered on our children. And there are whole industries that cater to children and to their development. We see them as purer, sweeter versions of ourselves, untainted by the worries of the world. That's the understanding that we come into the text with. And we might be tempted to implant that into the text. And so we look at Jesus' choice of a child as the role model, and we might walk away saying, Ah, Jesus, you're saying that we need to be like children because they're so innocent, and they're so sweet, and they're so pure. And some of that's true, right? Children have a sweet side. 
They are unconcerned with some of the things that adults worry about. But their behavior is not always so innocent. That sweet little Dr. Jekyll can rapidly morph into the tenacious, tantrum-throwing Mr. Hyde the moment you mention the word bedtime. Or worse, bath time. And as Lutherans, we recognize this, this reality, as original sin. So we don't have to train or teach our kids to be disobedient. We never have to teach them to lie to us. They just do it naturally. Instead, as parents, as grandparents, what we do, we take ample time to train up a child in the way he should go so that when he is older, he will not depart from it. So just as we have this natural inclination to sin and to selfishness, well, so do our children. And now the people during biblical times, they understood that very well. So though we have a, a very positive view of children, you know, we cater to their needs and to their desires, that was not the case in the first century. In the Jewish context in the first century, you can look high and low searching for something positive said about kids in the first century. And no matter how hard you look, you won't find it. You won't find it at all because children in that context and their understanding were seen as being willful, stubborn, foolish. They were unable to do anything for themselves. They were nuisances with absolutely nothing to offer and nothing to contribute. They were worthless in the eyes of the world. They were totally dependent on someone else. And later in that same gospel text, later on in, in Matthew 18, Jesus is going to compare them with sheep, which are cute as can be, but also tend to wander off and naturally get themselves into trouble. That's the context into which Jesus places a child in front of his disciples and says, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The little child is the role model of righteousness, not because they're innocent or pure, anything, any quality that they offer, but because they're fully dependent on the work of another. And not only is this the basis for being the greatest, but it's a prerequisite for being in the kingdom at all. Right? Verse 3, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The message of the gospel is that we can't do anything to earn his kingdom. That we can't contribute to our salvation. If we try to earn it, we end up negating it. If we try to become great in the kingdom of heaven, we end up removing ourselves from it altogether. Because instead of trusting in Jesus, we've trusted in ourselves. Luther puts it this way, Do not think to be great, but to be little. Becoming great will come of itself if you have become little. And this is the upside-down kingdom that Jesus came to establish. That the first would be last and the last would be first. That the greatest would be the servant of all. That you should humble yourself and that you'll be lifted up. That we should be like little children. Over and over and over, Jesus points us to a greatness that isn't achieved and it's not earned, but one that is given. 
It's a greatness that comes from being fully dependent on the Lord, on His grace that's given to us. Now, can you imagine the disciples' reaction to all of this? Because it was opposite of what they had envisioned. It's often the opposite of what we would consider greatness. This world and the kingdom of God will have very different values. The world today sees power and influence, control, popularity, fame, prestige, all to be markers of greatness. And that's the definition the disciples were operating with. Right? They saw the clout of the religious leaders and how everyone stopped when they spoke. They saw the lavishness of the officials and how they were weighted on hand and foot. They saw the powerful and the successful people, and they wanted that for themselves. Those were the kind of role models that they wanted to emulate. Those values of power and influence, success, wealth, those are sometimes what we want to use as the measuring stick for greatness too. We don't really want a child to be the role model. We want the superstar. We don't want, we don't like being told that we are fully and totally dependent on God. We want to hear that we have the power and we have the ability to do things ourselves. And so we work to get recognized and we stand out to do whatever we can, whatever it takes to get ahead. Because in the eyes of this world, we need to be successful in order to have meaning. We need to make a name for ourselves in order to be great. And I suppose this makes sense in terms of, of the way our world works, right? If you want to get into a good company, well, you, should, you have to prove your worth, right? You, you write your resume, and in your resume, you put and state things like what kind of education you have, right? What kind of job experiences you've gathered, what kind of specific skill sets that you have to offer. You want to tell them how great you are. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's the opposite. Instead, it's whoever humbles himself, like a little child, is the greatest. Rather than bolster ourselves up, Christ calls us to admit our utter unworthiness. See, a Christian is not someone who looks to God and says, Look at me, I'm so good. I've obeyed so many things, I'm better than others. God, you've got you to gotta accept me. No. The Christian is someone who says, there is nothing good in and of myself. I have nothing to offer. I deserve nothing but death and hell. But I know this. I know that Jesus is my Savior, that he died and he rose for me. And so I come before the throne seeking the grace and the mercy that's found in Jesus. That, that confession of sin, that confession of faith, that's greatness in the eyes of God. It is to humble ourselves before the Lord, to make no claim, to insist on no right, to come with no demands, but simply to bow before the Lord's will and word and yield completely to him, and to be content with the gifts that he offers. See, the kingdom of God asks us to despair of our own abilities and to lean fully on the grace that's won for us through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus invites us to let go 
of our misplaced dreams of grandeur, to walk away from the world's lofty definitions of success and greatness. He invites us to see the cross. Because there, Jesus lowered himself. And he made no claims. He was silent before his accusers. He insisted on no rights, but he endured, endured injustice. He came with no demands, but he subjected himself to the demands of the crowd that cried out, crucify him. Philippians says it this way, that he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. That he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus made himself like a little child, submitting to the will of his Father. And the Father's will was for Jesus to suffer, that you would be saved. It tells us later in Matthew 18 that your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He's not willing for you to perish. And so he gives you his Son that you would receive eternal life. The Father sends the Son to find us, the wandering sheep, the little one who often goes astray and gets themselves into trouble. The Father sends the Son to find us, the wandering sheep, to seek and to save the lost, to pay the price for our sin. Because it was the Father's will. And it was the Father's will that Christ not only die for the forgiveness of our sins, but he should rise again so that you would be brought into his kingdom, that you could enjoy his paradise. Though he was humble in his death, Christ is glorified in his resurrection. And even as we lower ourselves in this world, as we take on that role of a servant, we have the promise that we too will be glorified on the last day. That's what it tells us in James. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so now having received that promise, having received this grace of the cross, Jesus now says, follow me. Follow me into childhood, for in baptism I make you a child of God. Follow me into giving up on your self-reliance, for I have redeemed you, and I have given you all things. Follow me into abandoning what you thought was so important in life, for I will be your life, and I will be your greatness, and I will be your eternity. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We are. Not because of anything in us, but because we trust in the one who died and who rose for us. Through Christ, we've received his mercy, we received his grace, and so we know that the Father will welcome us into his kingdom. That's the last verse of our text. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Because we've received this robe of righteousness that covers over all of our sin, the Father looks at us and he sees Jesus. He looks at us and he sees righteousness. He looks at us and he sees greatness. And so there's no need for you to, to work for your salvation because it's been won for you by the blood of Christ. It's been given to you through faith. There's no need to seek out greatness. You've already been marked as an heir to the kingdom. There's nothing that you do to earn it. It's all gift. 
It's all grace. As we've looked at these first verses of Matthew 18, it's, it's all about what Christ has done for us and how precious we are in his sight. And then next week as we cover the second half of the chapter where Jesus focuses on how we show this grace now to others, how we share this grace in our lives. But for today, today let's sum it up this way. That the best role models for Christianity are not pastors or elders, they're not Sunday school teachers or seminary professors. The best role models for Christianity are children. Those who have nothing to offer God and everything to receive. Those who freely confess and trust in his forgiveness and grace. And that's not based on your age. It's based on your posture before God. So who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You are. Because you're a child of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you value and you cherish your creation enough to send Jesus to be our Redeemer. We thank you for his sacrifice that brings us new life. And now as your children, help us to rest in the grace that you have won for us. And give us hearts that, that seek to share that grace with others. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.